Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 2, where we just read a little bit ago? And um, we, we're going to return to our Mission is a Go series in the book of Acts on into January. But I wanted to share with you uh, from a passage of Scripture. This is one of my favorite uh, dealing with Christmas. Uh, in studying the life of Jesus Christ as it's recorded in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I have found that you can pick just about any circumstance uh, or event in the life of Jesus Christ, and you will always find three different responses from people whenever their lives intersect with Jesus. Um, this is true of those who actually met him uh, and heard him in person, and it's even true of people today through Jesus being revealed in the Word of God. And the very first time I noticed this was in studying Matthew's account here uh, of the birth of Christ. And as we go through these 18 verses this morning, first of all, we're going to see the response of Herod, King Herod, who when he became aware of the Messiah's birth, he responded to Jesus in anger uh, to the point that he enacted a, a genocidal campaign, uh, killing all of the male infants in an effort to eradicate Jesus. He thought Jesus was a threat to his reign as king. And then we're going we're gonna to notice the response of the religious leaders of that day to Jesus, the chief priests, the scribes. And finally, uh, we'll spend some time looking at the response of the magi, of those wise men that we sung about this morning. And they actually caused the other two responses with their arrival and their questions. And so whether it's way back then, at that first Christmas, or right here this morning, at the end of 2022, one of those three responses, um, it'll be chosen, it'll be acted upon by every single person in the world when their life intersects with Jesus Christ. And it's truly, it's a question of the utmost magnitude, what we're going to be considering this morning. It's a life or death question. The most important thing that you will ever have to come to grips with in your life is your response to Jesus Christ. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, before we come to your word here and study it verse by verse together, uh, I thank you for your word, and I pray that uh, we would have hearts that are completely yielded to the Holy Spirit as he illuminates the truth of your word to us. I'm thankful that it's quick, it's alive, it's powerful. I'm thankful that sometimes uh, it's a sword that that when it cuts, it hurts, but always with the goal of, of healing and giving life and restoring us to relationship with you. These are unchanging truths, um, and, and they echo from when this was first written here on that first Christmas all the way down to right here this morning. So I pray that we would understand your word and um, that we'd respond to your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Herod's response, King Herod's response to Jesus. It, it is one of antagonism, the opening verse of Matthew 2. It introduces us to two of the main characters who are faced with this question, what will you do with Jesus? 
Herod and the wise men from the east. Uh, and this morning, we're not going to take time to delve into all the considerations or guesses about who the wise men were exactly, uh, or how many wise men there might actually be, or where geographically they came from. What we know, according to verse 2, is that these were wise men from the east, and they came to Jerusalem, and they said, who is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And before we look at Herod's response to Jesus, I just find it really interesting that they speak of one here in verse 2 who is born a king. Isn't that kind of interesting? Because that's not typically how things work. Um, usually someone isn't uh, born as a king. If they're born into royalty, they might be a prince for a while. But Jesus Christ, his kingly status, it's described here as being conferred on him at his birth. As Jesus, uh, as scripture says, Jesus is uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? That's who he is. And uh, in verse 3, it's there that we see the response of Herod, at least initially, to the news that the wise men uh, gave him about the birth of King Jesus. It says he was troubled. Verse 3, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. In just a moment, we're going to see the trouble that grows out of his being troubled. But verse 3 also said that all of Jerusalem was troubled along with Herod. Now, I don't think that they were troubled in the same exact way that Herod was. I believe the whole of Jerusalem was troubled because Herod was troubled. We know from God's word and from extra biblical historical documents that uh, King Herod was a horrible person, terrible leader. He was a king who was literally insane, completely crazy uh, with pride and, and power, he even killed his own family members because he was worried about the possibility that they uh, would be a threat to his power and position. And it's at this point I want to jump ahead here to verses 12 and 13. Um, Herod had told the wise men to come back when they had found Jesus, uh, supposedly under the pretense of worshiping him as well. But we learn in verses 12 and 13 that both the wise men and Joseph were warned of God not to let Herod know where Jesus was. It says in verse 12, being warned of God in a dream that they, the wise men, should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And then verse 13, when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord also appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. <laughs> That was Herod's true intention. He wanted to destroy Jesus. So what's King Herod's response to Jesus Christ? He wanted to kill him. In fact, he was so uh, intent on doing so that verses 16 through 18 tell of his diabolical deed. It says, Then King Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, when they didn't come back and tell him where he was, says he was exceeding wrath. Well, boy, he went from troubled to really angry quickly, didn't he? And he sent forth, and it says that he slew all of the children that were in Bethlehem and in all of the coast thereof from two years old and under. They inform us that Herod's wicked actions were prophesied way back in Jeremiah 31, 15, verse 18. Uh, well, let's look at 17. It says, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy, it says here in the King James, talking about Jeremiah the prophet, saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She would not be comforted because they are not. What was the response of King Herod when his life intersected with Jesus Christ? It was antagonism. 
That was also the response of a different <laughs> King Herod, along with different religious leaders 33 years or so later, wasn't it? A desire to destroy Jesus? And they would. They would crucify Jesus. Uh, listen, as difficult as it is for you and I uh, here on this Sunday morning, uh, you and I who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, uh, we here who hail him as King of kings and Lord of lords, as difficult as it may be for us to, to even conceive, antagonism uh, is a response to Jesus even for some today in our time, isn't it? You only need to turn on the TV. You can hear the latest news about what this government leader or that one is proposing or supporting. You only need to watch some of the utter garbage that's on TV or in your newsfeed on social media to know that there are people, even now, in our day, whose response to Jesus Christ is antagonism, a hatred for him, a desire to destroy him. It was just two years ago, there was a guy named Tim Snedeker. He was a doctoral student and a teaching assistant at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he tweeted a response to a question. The question was, what would you do if you were sent back 2,000 years in a time machine? And do you know what his response was? I would assassinate Jesus of Nazareth. He's a doctoral student and a teaching assistant in the religious studies department at UC Santa Barbara. Last Sunday, I briefly mentioned how, how that, that angelic Christmas message uh, to the shepherds, peace to those on whom God's favor rests, that it isn't a universal peace for all, that, that if you try and harness or experience peace at Christmas without Jesus Christ being central to your entire celebration, you're going to know nothing of God's peace or his goodwill to us because it is only provided in Jesus Christ. And I find it incredibly sad and hopeless and peace-deprived that near where I grew up in rural Wisconsin, um, the only display to celebrate the season we're currently in is a simple sign that says this, at this season of the winter solstice may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There's only natural world. Religion is a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Mary, whatever. <laughs> and I mention these examples to illustrate the reality that when some people's lives intersect with Jesus, even on the most minuscule level, even today, the response to what will you do with Jesus is only antagonism, perceiving Jesus as, as a threat a threat to the way they want to live, to the lifestyle they are supposedly enjoying. Don't let that be you. What a terrible, dreary, um, deadly existence. Now let's go back up to verses 4 through 6, and we'll see the response of the religious leaders of that day. And their response to Jesus is ambivalence. Verse 4 says, And when uh, Herod had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people 
Israel. According to verse 4, when the wise men came to King Herod and asked him where this newborn king of the Jews was, Herod immediately and frantically gathered all of the religious leaders in his administration, all the chief priests and scribes, and, it, and he demanded of them, demanded of them where Christ, where the Messiah should be born. And then in verses 5 and 6, these religious leaders tell him right away. There, there's no delay from them. Uh, these were the top religious officials, the scribes. They were experts uh, in the Old Testament. That their lifelong career and passion was to study God's word, to make handwritten copies of God's word, to know it, to teach it, to apply it to God's people. I mean, when it comes to the Bible, these men were geniuses mentally. They could quote scripture at a moment's notice. In fact, they do in verses 5 and 6. We know that these religious leaders knew exactly where. They knew how to answer Herod. They knew in Micah 5, 2, that's what it's quoting there, God had promised his people that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So what is the religious leader's response to Jesus that we see in these three verses? Unlike King Herod, their response is not recognizable in action, but in their complete inaction. <laughs> I mean, their response is total ambivalence. That, that the whole rest of the verses here in chapter 2, that, that they don't even mention these religious leaders again. That is all the evidence for you and I to, to be shocked at their no response to Jesus. That's a little crazy, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you think that, that if, if you knew all of the Old Testament prophecies like they did, or you could quote them in a, in a heartbeat, if you and the people you ministered to, you have been waiting for generations for these promises to, to be fulfilled. If all of the sudden some wise men came from the east looking for the Messiah, and then, and then your king, he came to you and to ask you out of the blue uh, where the Messiah was supposed to be born, don't you think you might at least show some level of interest in everything that was going on? There's nothing. There's absolutely no response from them, a response of ambivalence. To, to them, Jesus didn't matter all that much to their daily lives. He didn't seem that relevant. As religious leaders, they should have known how momentous of an event this was. Uh, they should have led people to Christ to worship him. But they didn't even go see him or worship him themselves. They just went about life. You know, I don't think that they understood what we do. To be fair, I mean, I think some of the questions uh, you saying about Joseph this morning, I think that, that they probably were going through their minds. This is a strange way to save the world. <laughs> Not what we were expecting. They just went about life. And church, just like Herod and his response of antagonism, there are far too many people today, even this morning, who have this same response to Jesus. Ambivalence. These religious experts, they had the correct information. They knew the word of God. But they seemed personally uninterested in meeting Jesus themselves. And there are people all around us today who don't know who Jesus is. And this is their response to Jesus. And there are people all around us who do, but don't really care or see why he might matter in their life. And there are even far too many so-called religious people just like these religious leaders whose response to Jesus is only ambivalence. 
If you need proof, I want you to pause this morning right now. I want you to consider what Christmas is to most of this world. Think about it. And, and sadly, what Christmas is, even to many who profess to know Christ as their Savior, that's a frightening part. I mean, stripping all the Christ they can out of Christmas, making it about me and what I can get, or making it only about spending time together as a family. That's a wonderful part of Christmas, but that's not Christmas. Or making it only about uh, enjoying sentimental traditions, another part I love about Christmas, but that's really not Christmas. What is Christmas? The celebration of the promised Messiah, Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, who, who came uh, to live among us and to die for us and to rise from the grave for us so that we might be saved through faith in him. That's Christmas. And our celebration of his first coming, it should always motivate us to passionately live every single moment of our lives only for him and expectation of his, his return for us. Maybe before we even leave here this morning, there's no room. This is the bottom line. There's no room whatsoever for ambivalence to be a response to Jesus Christ. What does ambivalence toward Jesus look like, even in the church? It looks like a willingness to yield an hour or so a week to him as long as no better opportunities come our way. A professed desire for and leaning on his life-giving word, we say that, but not living in dependence on its guidance in our lives or its power each and every day. Friends, I'll tell you this. You want a you glimpse of what ambivalent Christianity looks like? You're going to see it in a vividly clear way seven days from now. You will. There will be individuals who claim to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but who will decide that obeying his command to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, that doesn't necessarily apply to his birthday. You doubt it? There, there's some churches who aren't meeting next Sunday at, at all. Um, it's shocking. Who think worshiping Christ on his birthday is asking a little much. That is ambivalence to Jesus Christ. There's no other way to describe it. No one who has truly experienced the life change that being born again is can have that response to Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this, uh, Christianity, if false, it's of no importance. And if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. You understand? I mean, what he is saying there and what we need to guard ourselves from when we consider the ambivalence of these religious officials toward Christ is that when your life intersects with Jesus, when you come to know who he is and what he has done for you, when you receive him as your savior, he will change your life. Amen? He will change your life. You're a new creation. You have a new primary identity. That's who you're all about. He's the most important thing in your life. Your whole life transforms. You're now his. You're forever his. And the only thing you can't be is ambivalent toward him, at least without feeling like you need a change. And there are too many religious people, even too many people who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ who are far too ambivalent about their relationship with him. And so my prayer is that God would keep us from such a response and instead move us to consistently have a response like these magi. What is their response to Jesus? It's adoration. Uh, we first saw in the opening two verses here of chapter 2, their response. They came to seek Jesus. Are you doing that this morning? 
Is seeking Jesus central to your lifestyle every day? Because what's a little quote we see a lot of time this time of year? Wise men still seek him. They do. They came to worship him, it said. And wise men still do that as well. They realize that that is what I was created for. That's why I'm on this earth. That's why God woke me up this morning. That's why I'm taking this next breath. That's why my heart is keep, it keeps beating. I'm here to worship him. That's what I was created for. That's what I've been recreated for when I got saved, when I got born again. That's the reason God gave me life. They came to seek Jesus, and they came to worship him. A long journey was not going to stand in their way. An adoration response to Jesus Christ it will not let anything get in the way of seeking him or, or worshiping him. That's top priority, not a busy schedule, not hobbies and activities, not anything uh, that is personally beneficial that we might do. Listen, um, it becomes unbeneficial very quickly the moment that we let it get in the way of seeking and worshiping Jesus, of adoring him. Don't let lesser things get that adoration. Herod's response of hatred, it would not be an obstacle for these wise men. The religious leader's total lack of assistance or enthusiasm, that was not going to get them off their path to Christ. Even if they had to go in alone, they were going to Jesus. They did. Would you resolve to respond to Jesus that same way this morning? In verses 9 through 11, we learned that they finally reached Jesus and they were able to do what they came to do. It says, when they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Listen, the response of these wise men, it's the only proper response to Jesus when they saw that star that had led them this far, when, when it continued to help them right to where Jesus lay, it says that they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. That's joy times four. That's a lot of joy. Do you got that kind of joy this morning? Do you got joy times four joy? If not, is it possible that it might be because you're seeking something or someone else and giving adoration to it where it doesn't belong. Joy won't come from that. It won't. It's promised. It won't come from that. Not exceeding great joy. Hey, and what did they do upon meeting Jesus? What was their response? Verse 11 says that they fell down. And they worshipped him. When they opened their treasures, they presented on him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Adoration. That's the wise men's response to Jesus Christ. It's the only one that's proper to give. They fell down. We could say that they bowed the knee. They surrendered all. He was the exclusive one that thrilled their soul. And they sought out and they worshiped Jesus at great cross, at great cost. Um, they presented him gifts. These are all different ways that we see their adoration of Christ. When they worshiped Jesus, it, it was to give something. You know, adoration never comes empty-handed. And Jesus doesn't want your gold or frankincense or myrrh. Um, doesn't need it. Honestly, it's his already. 
even if you have it. The, probably most of us don't have any of those things. Um, but you know what he wants? You. He wants you. He wants your exclusive adoration. So this Christmas, don't give that to anyone or anything else. If we do, we're actually we're responding like the religious leaders to Jesus, being ambivalent about him. I don't think there's a single individual here who has any Herod-like antagonism toward Christ. But sadly, our battle, and I speak out of testimony in my own life, our battle, what you and I are more prone to is some level of ambivalence. Adoration one, maybe two days a week, but, but waffling in adoration and ambivalence a good bit of the rest of the week. Uh, we have so many distractions that at, at times they come from the very blessings that, that God gives us. Do you know what is the best way to fight an ambivalent response or perspective toward Jesus? Adoration. So would you do that this morning? I mean, like these wise men that we just studied about, will you make your response to Jesus falling down and worshiping him? And we're going to have a time of response here, and the altar is always open. Uh, maybe you need to fall down and bow the knee like these wise men did. I mean, just an awestruck adoration of what the real meaning for Christmas is. And maybe the Holy Spirit is taking God's word this morning. He's showing you some area of your life where, where you've been ambivalent to some degree toward Jesus. Some area that you had roped off and you said, no, that's mine, Jesus. You, you can't have that just yet. Give it to him today. In worship, give him all of you. Maybe there's some sin that you haven't wanted to let go of. Maybe something that Jesus has been moving you to do to get involved in. Some ministry, somebody he's wanted you to go to. And so far, you haven't, in a response of adoration, you haven't said, Jesus, I'm yours. So will you do that this morning in adoration of Jesus? Will you give him you this morning? Give him you this Christmas? Will you let your heart fall down and worship him by presenting him to your uh, to him, your, your life, as Romans 12 says, is a living sacrifice. The question is this, as Tommy comes, what, what will you do with Jesus?